Welcome to Orthodox.Faith. This is John Harmon. And this is Ron Bentley. In this episode, we begin a new series where we focus on the short letter of 1 John. Mm-hmm. Most of you will know that the New Testament is divided between Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Book of Acts, and a category by itself, the Epistles or Letters, of which there are several, and Apocalypse, again, a category with just one book, the Book of Revelation. Among the letters or epistles, most are attributed to the Apostle Paul, but we do have several letters with other names on them, including Peter, James, Jude, and most important for us right now, the three letters of John. We're planning to cover the longest of those three letters, the first one attributed to John. That attribution to John makes this part of a loosely collected group that spans three of the four genres of the New Testament, Gospels, Letters, and Apocalypse. All together, we call this collection the Johannine Literature. Let's jump right in. We don't know exactly when or where the letter of 1 John was written. In fact, except for John's name in the title, and that's traditionally ascribed, we can't even be absolutely certain who wrote it. So let me explain what I mean here. In the letters with Paul's name on them, we usually get an opening sentence from Paul. He identifies himself. He may identify a few companions. Then he identifies whom he's addressing in the letter. Better yet, we can often identify tantalizing clues to connections between the letter Paul is writing and the account Luke gives us about Paul's travels. It's never a concrete tie, but they're clear hints. That's enough to get scholars all excited, (laughs) and they love to play the game of trying to date Paul's letters based on evidence in the letter and evidence in Luke. And as an aside, I got to say here, don't ever take the dates you get from those exercises too seriously. We can easily date Paul's letters plus or minus a decade or two, maybe plus or minus five years. Beyond that, it's literally an exercise in educated guessing. Yeah. In any case, that's what we have with Paul's letter. When we look at this letter that comes to us with the title 1 John, the first thing we notice is that we get none of that. We get an introduction that sounds almost like the opening of the book of Genesis, or very importantly here, the opening verses of the Gospel of John. We get an author who is addressing someone in the first person plural, i.e. he's using the word we as he talks in the letter, but he doesn't tell us who he is and he doesn't tell us who he's writing. In fact, the letter reads almost like an encyclical. That's a a letter intended from the start to be shared and passed around among several churches. Ron, this has the potential, I think, to really disturb some people. Okay. I open my Bible, for example, and it says 1 John. Right there. <laughs> right. Top center. Yeah, yeah. Can I not believe that? I, <laughs> I, I, start, I start reading it, and I hear things, to be honest, that sound an awful lot like the Gospel of John. I mm-hmm. think you even mentioned that a minute ago. I see themes from the Gospel of John. First John starts out with that which was from the beginning, which sounds a lot like the opening verses of the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. Yeah. That's familiar to a lot of us. There's also a shared interest in love, our love for God, God's love for us. And what's more, the letter of 1 John just sounds like the Gospel of John. (laughs) They're short, simple, declarative sentences and not a lot of complex vocabulary. And the vocabulary that's there is very similar between the two. So 
you, uh, nobody's going to convince me that these two aren't aren't related. <laughs> Fair enough. And John, you've identified a lot of the important things that do tie the Gospel of John to this letter, uh, specifically the common themes and the common use of language. In fact, let's talk about the language right now, and we'll get to the themes in a few minutes. In Greek, the Gospel of John and 1 John can both generally be described as using simple vocabulary and simple syntax, as you said. In fact, I was introduced to New Testament Greek using the letter of 1 John. That's, that's what we used in that class. This does not mean the ideas are simple. In fact, if anything, the simple syntax leaves a world of ambiguity that can simultaneously enthrall us as well as mystify us. And let me give you a few examples of what I mean here. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, the Father, and he means at that point, God the Father, the Father and I are one. It's a simple sentence. No complex subordinate clauses. The vocabulary is drop-dead simple. And yet, Christians would be arguing what exactly Jesus meant by that for another three or four hundred years. <laughs> Likewise, in the letter of 1 John, we get things like the statement, God is love. Again, simple syntax, perfectly intelligible vocabulary. But what that statement means in the context of this letter is not nearly as straightforward as we might like. Mm. It challenges us to grapple with how we understand love and what it means to ascribe love to God. In any case, as you laid it out, John, there are clear connections between the Gospel of John and this first letter. And for what it's worth, scholars, when they're being meticulous, and some might say too meticulous, <laughs> they will carefully assert that we don't know the Gospel of John, the letters of John, and Revelation were all written by the same person. In fact, it's only Revelation that says it is written by someone called John. Second and third John are written by the elder, and the Gospel of John is written by the beloved disciple, which we all just assume is John. But given the clear connections between all these books, they are treated as a related group of documents. If they weren't all written by the same person, they were certainly written by people in the same community mm. who had read the same documents and tended to write the same way. Mm. Now, all that said, there is, of course, a strong tradition that associates John with these documents. He was supposed to be the youngest of the disciples and the one who lived the longest. He was supposed to have settled around Ephesus in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And by the way, the island of Patmos that's cited in Revelation isn't far from Ephesus. Now, that tradition also says a lot more. It says John brought Mary, the mother of Jesus, to live with him. And there's a good deal more fanciful pieces that got associated with that tradition. But certainly early church leaders assumed the gospel, the letters, and revelation were all associated with John. Perhaps most importantly, the association between the gospel of John and the letters of John especially this first one that we're going through now, that was important in cementing the place of the gospel. Wow. It's been argued that the gospel of John lent itself to a Gnostic reading, and I'll explain what that means in a minute. I'm not entirely convinced the gospel really can be read that way, but when the gospel is put together with the letter of 1 John, there's just absolutely no way to do that. In any case, what we have in 1 John is an important letter written sometime in the late 1st century, possibly even the early 2nd century. It was written by an important church leader, traditionally 
John himself. And it addressed a number of problems within the church at the time. And we'll keep an eye on what those problems might have been as we read through the letter. Let's talk a few minutes about the themes that crop up in the letter. Ron, in other episodes, you and I have joked about Marcion being my <laughs> least favorite character in the early church. Right. He's the one who wanted to throw out the Old Testament completely. And can there be a more complete embodiment of evil? Than that? <laughs> <laughs> I would expect no less from you, John. But in other contexts, you've claimed that there's a possible connection between Marcion and these Gnostics that you've talked about, and you've suggested that First John contradicts their thinking. What's the connection? One of the questions that scholars will ask is whether Marcion was a Gnostic or did he just want to throw away the Old Testament? Hmm. They ask that because the Gnostics, a group of Christians that grew in popularity during the second century, so we're talking about the 100s AD here, they wanted to jettison the whole creation story. Many of us know the Gnostics get their name from claiming to possess secret knowledge, but more important than that is just what secret knowledge they claim to have. Right from the start, they asserted that creation, everything we can see, hear, feel, touch, taste, everything including our own physical bodies, are just one great big cosmic mistake. Wow. In fact, salvation consists in setting the divine spark inside of us free from its slavery to the physical world. So, as you might imagine, that perspective is hardly friendly to the Genesis creation account. How can a good God be responsible for creation when we insist creation itself is one great big cosmic mistake? Okay, so when the letter of 1 John begins by saying, we proclaim that which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched— that doesn't leave a lot of room for Gnostic claims. I can no. understand that. But another important theme in this letter is love, right? I mean, that's just pretty obvious. Right. It is, after all, the book that gives us God is love right. and perfect love cast out fear for a couple of examples. I can't hear that without also hearing for God so loved the world from the Gospel of John. Yeah, you're exactly right. The thing I want to point out, though, is that this letter was written in the context of a bitter dispute and divisions within the community. Uh, John, I'm, I'm going to call this author John, so you got me there. Within the community, John is addressing something has gone on, and he is very upset about it. And that actually gets us to a third theme, another one that's shared with the Gospel of John. There's a clear duality or dualism in this letter. And by that, I mean that it repeatedly contrasts between light and dark, good and evil, truth and lies, and even, and perhaps most importantly, between us and them. You cannot get around this. This is an author addressing a community in deep conflict, not just with the world around them, but with others that used to be a part of the community as well. For all the talk of love, we cannot miss that the author is also addressing a deep-seated bitterness as well. And we'll get to that in due course here. Well, Ron, you and I have discussed another theme here also, and it has to do with the importance of what we believe and the importance of what we do. Mm -hmm. It's not one or the other. We need to know what is true and acknowledge it. And at the same time, we also have to do what's right. 
this is one of the things that's most intriguing to me about this letter. Sometimes in the modern church, at least in the modern American church, you'll encounter those who want to pit these two things against each other. Mm. You'll sometimes encounter those who rail against dead orthodoxy. It doesn't matter what your doctrine is, they seem to suggest, unless it expresses itself in helping others and setting people free. And no doubt it's true if you think it's enough to quote the Nicene Creed, know what it means, and ascribe to it wholeheartedly then you've entirely missed what the church is about. Although, to be fair, I don't know anyone who actually thinks that way. Hmm. In my mind, the letter of 1 John leaves absolutely no room for this kind of thinking from either direction, this kind of thinking that pits what we believe against what we do. There are two things completely essential. One is expressed in the letter in terms of acknowledging that Jesus is the Messiah. In other words, it matters what we believe. The other is expressed in terms of not sinning. In other words, it matters what we do. Ron, as I understand it, these themes are recurring in 1 John. In other words, they're interwoven throughout the book, aren't they? Mm -hmm. It's not like John picks up one, deals with it, and then (laughs) sets it down to pick up another. Right. We're going to see each of these popping up over and over as we read this letter, aren't we? That's right. And there are certainly places where one theme takes the lead, but my sense is that the letter goes back and forth between them fairly quickly. John can pivot from one back to another in just a sentence or two. And sometimes the challenge is figuring out how they're connected to each other. They seem to be all of one piece in the author's mind. Well, without further ado, let's get into the text of the letter. The book opens with these verses. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. That's the first two verses. In the next two verses, John says they proclaim this so that others may have fellowship with them and with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. All this is to make their joy complete. Although we never see the word gospel, that's clearly what John is talking about. The message they have, the message that they're keen to proclaim, is the good news about what God has done in Jesus Christ. And this is where we see right from the opening verses that the Gnostic reading does not stand up to scrutiny. This message is about something John says that they've seen and heard and touched. This is God interacting directly with the created order, and there's no hint that any of this was a great big cosmic mistake, as you said, Ron. (laughs) Right. In fact, the phrase, that which was from the beginning, hints that this message is about more than just their most immediate interactions with Jesus. This is about God's continuing work in the created order begun long before. What's interesting to me is that this concrete gospel, if you'll let me call it that, is proclaimed precisely so that the readers and the author can share some sort of fellowship and then extend that fellowship to God. It's as if you have to get these basic details right before you can move on to anything else. Ron, I've heard you make that claim before, but I'm not sure it's always clear. You talk about a concrete gospel. 
But why exactly does that run counter to Gnostic claims? Fair enough. Because the Gnostics considered the physical world one great big cosmic mistake, as I put it earlier, it was preposterous to talk about Jesus interacting with the physical world in a physical human body, being a real physical person, eating, sleeping, touching individuals as he healed them. That's because as far as the Gnostics were concerned, it was preposterous to talk about any divine interaction at all with the physical world. And that's precisely why the Old Testament creation story was so offensive to them. Ah. So when the author of 1 John says they're going to proclaim something that they saw and heard and felt, and when he suggests that all this is part of God's plan for salvation that goes all the way back to creation, there's little he could say that would more directly contradict the Gnostic way of thinking. Ah, yeah. Uh, Moving on in the text, starting in verse 5, a couple of those themes that we just discussed come front and center. God is associated with light, for example. In him there is no darkness at all, it says. Mm -hmm. If we're on God's side, if we expect any fellowship with God, then we too will walk in the light. That's possible. In other words, we can walk in the light and we can join that fellowship that includes God, his son Jesus, and other believers because we have been purified by Jesus' blood. Of course, in the background of all of this is the full story of Jesus' death and resurrection. John doesn't give us all that here in the letter, though, because he he assumes we already know that. Right. But the mention of being purified by Jesus' blood suggests another thought. Why did we have to be purified? John moves to that question in verse 8 with the statement, if we claim to be without sin— we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Mm-hmm. That's, that statement I know is familiar to a lot of Christians. In the following verses, John makes it clear, forgiveness is available. We can be cleaned up, to use the analogy John reaches for here, but we're simply lying if we claim we didn't need to be cleaned up. You know, that's not the last time that John's going to be very blunt about what we can and can't say. He's addressing a group of believers who should know what is true. They should know they have sinned and that they need what Jesus has to offer. They should also know, as John will assert later, that Jesus is the Messiah. If they say anything that contradicts that, they're just lying as far as John is concerned. And he has no problem at all saying that. I want people to understand this is the same author who later says, God is love. Love does not mean ignoring things we know are true or letting others do it who should know better. It's very confrontational, this letter is. And one has to imagine it's a difficult posture to take, and yet it's one this author does take. Maybe we have sinned, but the author doesn't want us to. (laughs) As we we move into chapter 2, he says he is writing so that those who read his letter won't sin. Of course, forgiveness is available, but it's precisely because Jesus is the atoning sacrifice for us and for the rest of the world, to use his terms. John, I expect that phrase, atoning sacrifice, and that's sometimes translated propitiation, using even more opaque (laughs) language. I suspect that means something immediately to you. I can't say it means something concrete to me. I can tell you the Greek word that gets used here, and it's used a couple of times by other letter writers in the New Testament. 
That word is hilasmas. So I asked myself here, where do the Septuagint translators, the guys who translated the Old Testament into Greek several hundred years before the time of Christ, where do they use the same word? And what I came up with was only about a handful of spots throughout the Old Testament, perhaps most significantly in Leviticus, where it's talking about something called the Day of Atonement. So what's going on here? What is a sacrifice of atonement? Now, that's a tricky technical term that John pulls out here. And okay. not having a clear concrete meaning in easy reach is no surprise. Okay, uh, I'll certainly agree, Ron, that the Old Testament is the place to look. And, and we would hope that the examples of that term for atoning sacrifice that you found in the Greek Old Testament, that work that we call the Septuagint, mm-hmm. we hope it, it would clear it all up. But Even there, it's hard to get a super specific and concrete idea. An atoning sacrifice includes the sense of a sacrifice that provides cleansing and forgiveness for a sin or for sins. And it also includes the sense that the sacrifice is acceptable such that it satisfies and turns away the judgment that would otherwise come on the person that the sacrifice was made for. In some uses of the word in the Old Testament, one or the other of those ideas may be more in the foreground than the other, but that's the sense as I understand it. Here in 1 John, it's very clear that in Jesus' sacrifice, he has supplied what was needed to affect our pardon, and so is himself the solution for human sin. John, I'm fascinated to hear you describe it that way, and I'm not sure all listeners will cue into how carefully you said what you said. Your account strikes me as restrained. It's as precise as it can be and no more. If I understand you correctly, this topic this topic is complicated, even for Old Testament scholars. Yep. <laughs> if so, that agrees with what I've encountered in theological circles. Some people get really excited about various theories of atonement, uh, specific ways of explaining what atonement means and how it's accomplished. However, you said three specific things here. Jesus is a sacrifice. Jesus was what was needed to affect our pardon and Jesus is the solution for human sin. Yes. I suspect some will want us to push further here to be more specific, but we're actually very intentionally sticking with what we can say definitively. Push any further than this, be any more specific about what exactly atonement means, and you're entering contested territory, and you can be ready for other Christians to disagree, sometimes quite vehemently. Right. When you say this is contested territory, Ron, (laughs) you've really said a mouthful. That is exactly what this is. It's a long and winding road that we encounter when we Mm -hmm. go down this way. And that's something that we take very seriously here on this podcast, that we really don't want to start saying things that we really can't say with a lot of confidence. Right. In any case, while we may have sinned, John clearly expects that we will not continue to sin as he continues his letter. Beginning in verse 3, he argues that if we claim to know God, then we will also do what God commands. We see that elsewhere in the, in the in the Bible, don't we? I mean, not just here. The, <laughs> right. That's a very very common idea that we find in Scripture. The one who claims to do this and does not do what God commands is wait for it a liar. <laughs> There's that nasty word again. Yeah, and at this point, we also see that obeying God's commands and walking as Jesus did 
are effectively synonymous in John's mind. Mm -hmm. In a short aside in verses 7 and 8 of chapter 2, John insists there's nothing new about all of this. The people he's addressing have always known that they should obey God. And yet, at the same time, there is something new about this. The darkness is passing, he says, and the true light is already shining. I may be speculating a little about this, but it hardly seems a stretch to say that the new thing is the work God just accomplished in Jesus Christ. Mm. Given the context, given some of the things John says later in the letter, I think it's clear enough that that's what's new here. We've always known we should obey God, as you pointed out, John. Now we have both the atoning sacrifice of Jesus' death, the example of Jesus' life, and presumably the victory of his resurrection to look back to. Although, to be fair, John hasn't brought up resurrection yet in this context. As we move into verse 9, it's as if John reaches for a specific example of claiming to know God but not obeying God. You can't claim to know God. You can't claim to be in the light and simultaneously hate your brother. At this point, I think we've seen all the themes we discussed crop up in some form or another. The concreteness of the gospel, dualism, light versus darkness, us versus them, Mm -hmm. the importance of both what we believe and what we do, and here, finally, the importance of love. What's fascinating is that as we move further into this second chapter, and that'll have to wait for the next episode, we're going to find out that there has been some serious division within the community that John is addressing, and he is fighting mad. Mm. In fact, he's essentially going to call the people who left antichrist. And he means something very specific when he says that the term fits. But again, I just want everyone to notice John sees no contradiction between his vehement enunciation of all that is false and loving your brother. These go hand in hand. I suppose you can eventually conclude that John's mixed up, (laughs) but you owe it to the author and you owe it to yourself to ask Could there be something here? Maybe we don't know all we should about love. In any case, this section of the letter wraps up with a curious interlude of sorts. It has a poetic quality. John addresses three categories of people, children, fathers or elders, and young people in that order. And he addresses them twice, beginning each time with, I write to you, children, fathers, young people, because... And at each turn, he cites something different about the Christian life. We're forgiven in Christ. We know him who is from the beginning. We have overcome the evil one, and so on. The point seems to be that everyone is in the frame. Everyone in the church is being addressed, young and old alike. We are forgiven. We know God, and we're overcoming something that is evil all around us. We're on our way. (laughs) In the opening portions of the letter of 1 John, we've seen all of our major themes come up. The gospel, the good news about what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, is something concrete. In other words, God is interacting directly with the same world that God created. If you've got an account that says God did not create the world and would never interact with it directly as the Gnostics held, then it directly contradicts what Christians are asserting. We see John dividing the world into competing camps, the dualism that pits light and knowing God against darkness and ignorance of or opposition to God. We see the equal importance of what we believe and what we do 
And we've gotten our first hint of the theme of love. And each of these, as we said earlier, are going to recur throughout the letter, but most famously, and a little bit later, the importance of associating God and love. In the next episode, though, we'll finish chapter two and move on into chapter three. This is the point, as I said earlier, where John really comes out swinging. Something has divided the church and John is mad. If you think his language has been a bit harsh up to this point, you ain't seen nothing yet. Join us as we wade into the divisions that upset John so much. For more information about this podcast and our other activities, please see our website at orthodox.faith. That's O-R-T-H-O-D-O-C-S dot F-A-I-T-H. And thank you for listening. <laughs>